HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hey, welcome back to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. I'm Wythe Marshall, and as always, I'm joined by my amazing co-host. Hi, I'm Alyssa Metric. And today we're so excited. We have um, not one, not two, not even three, but four amazing guests uh, from the Heirloom Food Group. Uh, and we're very excited to speak with them about their work in food and agriculture and education and beyond. Um, so thank you all so much, first of all, for uh, syncing your schedules. I know it's it's like, you know, geometrically harder with with four people than just like two people. Um, and uh, yeah, we're excited to hear about your work. It sounds um, like there's a lot a lot of interesting um, you know points to be made in terms of of urban ag, uh, but then many many other topics in food that I think uh, you know will will come up. So, um, yeah, by way of introduction, um, this is, uh, you know, who, I guess who's on the call. Um, should I, should I call on names again? We've never had four guests, so apologies. Or do y'all just want to jump in and sort of introduce yourself so we know like, you know, whose voice is whose. Can we rock, paper, scissor it out? (laughs) (laughs) Linda, why don't you, why don't you jump in? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm Linda Taliaferro. I am CEO and partner of Heirloom Food Group. Okay. Well, good, good evening. I am Floyd Taliaferro. I am Chief Financial Officer here at Heirloom Food Group and partner as well. All right. I'm Chef David Thomas. I'm Chef and partner here at Heirloom Food Group. And I'm Tanya Thomas. I'm the Executive Pastry Chef and partner here at Heirloom Food Group. Awesome. Um, well, thank you all um, 
for for again making time. And uh, I think the the first question is: so, what is Heirloom Food Group? Can you break it down? Like, what's what's your pitch? What's your big vision? Um, I'm I'm really excited to hear you <laughs> describe this. Oh, it's got to be me. Oh, you know what? They always pick me. (laughs) (laughs) You know why you're the CEO. (laughs) You know, Heirloom Food Group is, um, you know, a multidimensional culinary organization. We're really focused on... um, farming, sustainability. We focus on um, absolutely providing quality food, quality products. We really um, champion sustainability in a way that, you know, is a cornerstone of our business. And what we really do is we provide catering um, to, you know, surrounding businesses. And that's what we do for events. And um, not only do we do catering, we also dabble in bringing products. Um, We also do wholesale accounts, um, as well as we do an education initiative. So a lot of the things that we do is really leveraged upon um, championing not only um, sustainability principles in farming, but also um, Maryland foodways, like just really championing regional food here and um, uplifting the Black narrative and how, um, you know, uh, the Black population here in Maryland has really edified the history of Maryland food or, and also within the mid-Atlantic, which sometimes gets ignored. So, you know, a lot of the things that we do really is about um, championing sustainability, championing Maryland black food narratives. And that's what we do. And we we do that every single day. So that's us. That sounds like a lot to do every day. That's a very uh, holistic <laughs> approach. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you, and, and everyone should check out the heirloom um, food group site, which is h 3 I. R L O O M. So heirloom, but with a three instead of an E.com. Um, and they have some amazing uh, pictures and more information about what they do, but the, the food looks just so good. Um, and there's more about, you know, the, the background. Um, and as, you know, can you tell me about the, this kind of, uh, the idea of three and like where the name heirloom comes from? <laughs> Tanya's good at that. She's so friendly. No, I'm not. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, I mean, basically, um, the three is, you know, in our culture and just in life in general, three is a very spiritual number. Mm-hmm. It's um, highly represented in our culture when it comes to and spirituality, um, yeah. consciousness. I mean, and for Africans and African-Americans, you know, that three is important because it, it starts as like the foundation of life. Right. And when we talk about fire cooking and that sort of thing, it is the three stones that represent the stove that we create and cook off of. So we talk about that number three, it goes back to that. And then I guess more superficially, Floyd and I's birthdays are in the bunch of March. So. And really, really heirloom food group mm-hmm. is, is this, you know, manifestation of the brainchild of Floyd and David. Technically it is, you know, so mm-hmm. that's why it that is. number three mm-hmm. is going for, and they're both March babies. Oh, well, me too. So mm-hmm. uh, good, oh, good company. Hey. <laughs> That's great. Well, maybe maybe you can pull that through and talk about um, some of the the you know the, the the bigger ideas that underlie like what your passion for food and farming as as we discuss. Um, but it's also a cool name. It's easy to remember. You know, heirloom, but with a three instead of an e. So, um, just again for the, the listener, since it's a, a an audio medium, uh, just describing that. Um, great. Well, uh, I guess, you know, um, something that, that obviously Melissa and I, the reason we have this podcast is we're really interested in agriculture specifically, which can mean so many things. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the people we talk to are more on the farming side, sometimes the planning side. So it's really great to speak to people more in the culinary world, um, and thinking about the end, you know, the point in a way, right. To eat the food. 
Um, and but it's interesting that y'all sort of are, are in both worlds. So I'm just curious to hear if you can describe a little about what Heirloom does um, in terms of of the farming. So so with the food side, you have catering, you have products. Um, looks like you have pop ups, you know, other other culinary activities. What what is your engagement with farming? Um, you know, and if if where where do you farm? And can you sort of set the scene for us? Like take us out there, you know, onto the farm. Gotcha. Um, well, we are currently not farming on our land as of yet. Um, we're putting the plans together and getting that developed. But we do, however, work with a number of Maryland farms locally here. Um, just about everything that we bring into Heirloom in terms of food products, it's all fresh. And 95 percent of that is locally produced, whether it's chicken, beef, duck or lamb. Um, and then obviously all our vegetables come from here locally. Um, we do source, you know, pineapple and lemons and things of that nature from other places when we need to. But, um, yeah, we are a very localized company in that respect. Um, and we're very passionate about using local products. Mm-hmm. Not only is it just good for us in terms of reducing our footprint, but you just get a better quality of product the closer you get it to the source. Um, and as we get into doing our own farming, we know that we're going to just be able to increase you know, the level of products that we give to our customers and be able to just um, know exactly what we're serving. That's something that's very important to me, knowing not only what I'm serving, but how that product was grown, how it was produced, the people that produced behind it, because all those things change the end product for us. So having that experience is just good for us and knowing what we want to do. Um, farming is just a, it's a pivotal part of our business. Can't wait to get my hands on the soil, but right now we are primarily buying from other farms. And we do make sure it's a combination of both rural and urban mm-hmm. farms that we do source yeah. from. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's, you know, we're one of the only companies that champions the local farms that we get our product from. So it's one thing that, you know, our our chefs know where the food comes from, but it's another thing to let our consumers know where their food comes from. So whenever we're crafting menus, whenever we're pushing out proposals, we're very, very um you know, we're very conscious about making sure that we write in where, what farms they got their chicken from, what farm, you know, even down to the microgreens, where they came from. So we are very conscious about the way that we communicate where the products come from when it goes out to the consumer as well. That's awesome. Um, So can you talk about some of the local farms you work with, maybe on the rural and the urban side, like any shout outs, anyone come to mind? Albright, Albright (laughs) Farms. You know, uh huh. It came through for us with the turkeys, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Albright comes through with the turkeys, and especially right now when it comes to eggs. If anyone knows the price of eggs, yeah. um, they are the best um, when it comes to that for us. So they definitely come through us mm-hmm. every year, and when we are in a pinch, Richardson Farms um, and needing something as well. Yeah. Riches and Richardson. farms yeah, when it Richardson comes farms, to kale, kale and, and cowards. cowards. All our broadleaf greens we get mm-hmm. from them. Um, and then we have um, one straw farms that we get our tomatoes from during the season. And we can also get preserved tomatoes from her because she cans them after tomato season mm-hmm. is over with. And we have Lagenfelder farms that I get um, heritage pork from from time to time. Um, let's see. Liberty oh, Delight yeah, Farms Liberty is Delight another one. Farms, that beef, beef and lamb, and mm-hmm. that's a whole. <laughs> you keep um, and then based on you know yeah. pricing and availability, all that stuff, you know, I have a number of chicken vendors that I use. So um, I've got uh, a chicken vendor in Pennsylvania, which is within our radius. We do not want to purchase outside of three hundred miles. 
I wanted to ask a quick question. Um, so, um, Chef David, I, I was looking up the, um, the heirloom website and, um, and just, uh, I was curious about like the history of, um, your farm to table experience, uh, with your grandmother, um, who pretty much had a 13 acre farm and just like how that really kind of influenced, your cooking and being close to farms and close to that, those ingredients. Um, I wonder if you'd want to share about that. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, farming has always been a part of my life just because my grandmother, you know, owned that land. My father, um, you know, grew up, you know, growing food and, I don't want to call him a sharecropper, but we had that, my family had that existence. So farming has always been a part of us. You know, I lived in the city in Baltimore. I lived in Anne County, which is right outside the city. So I wasn't farming all the time, but when we would go into my grandmother's house, which was every weekend, we would go there every Saturday and Sunday. Um, I would sit in the kitchen. I would watch her cook. Once I started cooking myself, I just wanted to get back to what I saw her doing. When I started cooking professionally, I was doing everything out of a package and we were working with these purveyors that would, you know, if I wanted a four ounce chicken breast stuffed with apples and stuffing, I told them and they would deliver it to me. You know, we weren't preparing, we weren't really butchering animals and cooking food to that degree. It was all kind of prefab. And once I got into cooking professionally and I decided that I wanted to do this for a living, I said, I've, I've got to get back to what my grandmother was doing. Um, you could tell a difference in the quality of food. Um, it tastes different. Uh, I'm certainly, you certainly feel different because too much sugar, too much salt in these processed items. So that's kind of really what inspired me is that I noticed from my professional career, I was cooking all this stuff that was already prefab to a degree. But what I remember seeing someone cook, cook, it was my grandmother. And that's the stuff that inspired me. Her, you know, grinding her own salt, um, making her own root beer. I mean, butchering a live chicken. You know, that's, you know, you that kind of experience changes you. And once I got into food, I'd say, yeah, this is the way I've got to go. Yeah. And I think, too, like, you know, our partnership coming together is that, the connections, there's so many different connections between all of us. And I think the farming, why it's not just important to David, but it's also important to me. Like I grew up on a farm. I grew up in North Carolina, rural North Carolina, small, small town in Pine Tops. My grandparents were sharecroppers um, and, you know, they owned a small plot of land. And I grew up every summer going down there and we dug in the dirt yep. and dug up iced potatoes. It's so funny because we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about iced potatoes and they were like, what the heck is that? And I'm like, I grew up in the South. We talk about iced potatoes and it actually is like short for Irish potatoes. Irish potatoes. And, but that was a thing. And, you know, I, we were out there, we were shucking corn. I always say that I'm traumatized. I'm such a city girl now, um, which is why urban agriculture is so important to me now because I'm just like, <laughs> let's grow it out of the window, baby. Or let's, you know, well, oh, it's in the 
alley and I can walk and I can see the ground? Oh, great. Because I grew up, was traumatized, shucking corn and a silkworm fell on my leg. And I'm like, never again, I'm shucking corn. You know, so, but I grew up, we had goats, we had chickens, fresh eggs. We'd walk outside. We had a German shepherd who we had to replace chickens all the time because he would dig a hole and, you know, he'd eat the chickens. And so, you know, so I grew up, you know, my, my grandfather, he hunted deer. We had veal. I mean, you're talking about, you know, we talk about using no, you know, having no waste and hearing those principles from David and just knowing about them for me growing up. I'm like, oh my gosh, me now as a city girl, yes, farming is so important to me because, you know, I grew up watching my grandfather hunting deer, using every single part of the deer and actually preserving it and using it in multiple ways, making deer burgers, deer stew. It's like, honey, if it's, if what, it needs meat, Here's some deer, you know? And so, we, I mean, we grew everything from potatoes. We had pear trees. I mean, it was just, um, so farming has always been a part of my life. And it's just a full circle moment to be able to partner with chefs who also have that experience. So it's just, there's so many different connections that we have and why farming is important to us because we're bringing that legacy up behind us. That's right. So. Well, this, this may be a good time to ask then, can you tell us about the plans for the farm? So we weren't sure where the farm was at when we scheduled this interview, but it sounds like there's plans underway. There's land that is, you have the land, you're going to get it land. What are you planning? I know it's cold right now. We're taping this um, beginning of January, right? So yeah. nobody's really out there right now, but what's the plan? Yes, we've, we've got the land. I'll let Floyd talk about that. No, 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 no. Y'all doing such a great job. I really... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm part of the interview process. I'm just listening, all right? <laughs> but no, um, location though, uh, Linda, we call that, what area we want to call that before um, we, so we can get into that directly? It's right outside of Baltimore, yeah. Upper Co. Maryland. Yeah, so we, we, um, we've acquired about 70 acres in Upper Co. Maryland. Um, it is in a very beautiful cove. It's, it takes maybe about off the road, the street is probably about, a quarter of a, maybe a half a mile, quarter of a mile to a half a mile off the road in, um, very beautifully located. Um, right now, our initial piece is um, we are building the roadway to get back there for um, high traffic areas. So um, that's that's been a ongoing process, but now we have our contractor, we have our quotes, everything laid out. We are getting ready to start that process. Um, from there, we will be section, sectioning off and um, building our farmhouse from there. Um, and then um, as an organization, a team, we, we're starting to decide what we want to have fully on the farm. I know we want to have an apiary. That is one of our huge things with bees and honey. Um, and we've talked about growing several different products. But our main focus is no-till, no-till farming, uh, regenerative farming. So that that is what our our main, our focus is going to be there um, because again, like we want to, we don't want to strip the ground of its nutrients, et cetera. And we want it to operate our, the farm. Gabriel Fields is the farm's name. Um, Gabriel Fields to operate in a uh, semi-homogeneous state where everything is occurring naturally um, as it should be because we feel like that would be able to get us the best product. Um, and that's, that's what we want to serve people and be able to provide to people. So um we're in our, I won't call it the baby steps, but we're, I would say that our goal is to be up and fully running. Um, is a, a, a strong goal, but uh, I would say October of this year. So it is, 
We are definitely in motion and very excited. It's cold, but work is happening. All right, just to let you know. <laughs> work is happening. Yeah, when we first uh, got the land, we immediately had the soil tested. And actually, the soil isn't, I mean, when we first looked at it, we thought it was going to be pretty bad, you know, because they had been um, soy growing um, soy on the land and they had yeah. not been switching. Um, yeah, they had been growing right. soybeans. They had not been switching um, out the crops, which you're supposed to rotate the crops in order not to deplete the nutrients. And it, this is such a learning experience for, for us because, you know, even though I grew up on the farm, I don't know everything about farming. And so we, what we've done is like, we've gone and we've bought massive amounts of books and we've been reading and we've just been studying just to get our feet wet and trying to understand what's going on. We've been trying to look into what resources are available to us, um, especially here within Baltimore city, because Baltimore has the Baltimore farm Alliance, um, where we can have access to mentors and folks that we can talk to about training. And because we live in Baltimore city, even though the farm isn't in Baltimore City, it's the connection that we have because we are bringing the food here into Baltimore City and and being able to do the work here with the food that we're going to be growing out on the land. Um, because our plan is to bring educational initiatives from the city out to the farm, and so having that pipeline back. Um, but we've been learning so much, um, and when we had the soil tested, it came back actually pretty good. Um, and so we didn't have this. We we're not in a state of trying to. Um, rebuild the health of the of the land so that's why we can really aggressively say that we want to make sure that we have our first crops planted um by this fall so we'll have you back on for the next season and you can tell us like how it went Your yep. first- yeah. pretty much pretty much pretty much so th- to give us a sense this is um this is not in baltimore proper but it's not that far like what is the relationship in terms of you know what i mean like where you're working and and your eaters are dining Baltimore County. County. It's Baltimore County. Okay. Okay. So it is, it's urban, peri-urban, kind of like not too far. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and also that makes sense. How, how many acres do you all have? 68. 68. Wow. Yeah. So that's incredible. Um, I used to help manage a, a garden for a restaurant in Brooklyn and, you know, the, the idea of like being right outside of Baltimore and having 68 acres, you're going to get so much more food than if you're in Baltimore proper. And that's what yeah. a lot of people don't realize when you're like running a restaurant or a catering business or what whatever you're running, you, you need land. Like, like it, it was funny. I remember like working for this restaurant and it's like, okay, we got four broccoli. What are we going to do with it? The chefs are like, I don't know. Like, it's just... <laughs> it's one pizza. It would be yeah, one pizza, right? Like, like, uh, pizza. Yeah, it's like uh we produce five percent of the produce, maybe one percent, maybe, right? So it's like a lot of folks that don't understand you need all that land if if you're gonna do this high productivity, you know, um food group. So so it totally makes sense and that's just so exciting. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. And it sounds like long term, you're stewarding the land, you know, in a regenerative way. So you're thinking about the future and you're informed by the past. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, like if um, yeah, have you also talked with other farmers? I guess what resources have been most useful? You mentioned reading books like have, been, have other farms, um, you know, helped out. And is, is that is that a community that's vibrant in the area um, is like UME, like extension, like helpful? Like what's been most most, um, you know, what's what's the learning curve look like at the point you're at? Um, Floyd would probably better answer that question, but uh, we do have resources. Mm-hmm. Friends of ours are in the farming industry. Uh, one in particular, Denzel Mitchell, who is just, um, he's probably one of the most important urban farmers in Baltimore. 
Um, he was probably responsible for bringing um, the fish pepper back into existence in Maryland. Um, so it was a crop that was um, grown um, in Maryland back in the antebellum era. The enslaved population brought those crops over with them. Um, we were growing it here. It got lost in the shuffle through time. It stopped being grown and sown commercially. Denzel brought it back. Um, so he's somebody that we communicate with all the time. He's a good friend of ours. Um, and he's going to help us with whatever we need for the farm. Right. So can you, that's awesome. Can you say a little more about the, like the fish pepper, or like other, other things that have inspired Uh-oh. you to, to farm <laughs> in the area or like ties to Baltimore as a food scene? Like, like what, what do you want to do with your farm to make it, you know, not, not just well, regenerative I, and good food, but like tied to, to the place you're at. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm also thinking of other um, varieties um, that, that um, you all feel connected to um, that you would like to, that you cook with, that you would like to grow. If that makes sense. I mean, we got a lot of stuff that we plan on growing. Like Floyd was saying, we we're approaching this holistically. So we are gonna we're gonna grow a lot of different things, but we are gonna approach it the way that makes sense for the land. As much as I want okra, as much as we want sorghum and all these things, we want to grow them and we will. But we're gonna grow them when it's right for the land. Um, we're gonna grow all those different things that you think about when you associate it with black food, black eyed peas, and. Um, bombara beans and, you know, things like that that most people don't hear in the African um, dialect in terms of food. It's stuff that we know because of the research that we do. Um, so we want to bring those things back. Not only are they important to the African-American culture, but in terms of crop rotation um, and making sure that the soil is not depleted of its resources, you need to have a number of crops that you can go into different spaces with. When you pull onions out, what do you put in? When you pull garlics out, what do you put in? When you pull tomatoes out, what do you put in? You know, those are the things that we know that are important for us. So as much as we say we want to grow this and that, we're going to grow what the land wants us to grow, and then we're going to make those product work for the business. And we do know that because we've known of other farmers that have done it because he mentioned sorghum. Um, they actually utilize sorghum as, cover as, crop. As, as a cover crop. So we, mm-hmm. that's our plan and basically doing that and be able to bring that back to the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then I, take that sorghum and, you know, grind it or yeah, mull it or whatever we can do. Yeah. We can make syrup out of that. We can do all kinds of things with those products. And yeah, we're, we're not letting anything go to waste. And we just, one of the things I know David and we've all talked about is some of the indigenous crops to the state that a lot of the farmers stopped yeah. growing because it just wasn't a demand for it. We wanted to work on bringing those things back um, because Maryland was known for some of these crops, like he had mentioned about the fish peppers. You know, we do have some areas that have um, pawpaw trees. So mm-hmm. we do have that, which was an indigenous crop to the state of Maryland. It was very prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was one of the grapes. Um, uh, it wasn't a muscadine. No, it was... It's Another great dude in Tennessee. But I mean, and then there, there are yeah. 13, 13 to 16 varieties of corn that were grown in Maryland mm-hmm. since the antebellum era till today. Most of that was wiped out prior to the 1960s because we got into industrial farming. And the only thing industrial farming wanted is white or yellow corn. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're talking about blue and red and all these different hues and different starch levels. It's all that stuff is gone because we're only dealing with commodity crops now. Um and what we're trying to do is to make sure that we build the land back up responsibly, bring these crops back that not only we eat, but the livestock and the animals are attracted to. So, you know, you don't have to bring bees in. You can attract them. 
You don't have to bring deer in. You can attract them. You know, those are the things that we look at in terms of putting this farm together. So it makes sense for the whole ecosystem. That was so well said. <laughs> Snaps. I remember it. I'm glad I got it recorded because I won't. (laughs) You know, that's what happens when things just come out passionately and it's not, you know, Mm -hmm. so it makes a difference. Yeah. So that, that, um, all of that definitely makes sense. And, and, and just coming from, you know, what is best for the land and that connection to the land, that importance of the connection to the land and how to treat the land. Right. Right. And also that just that historical and cultural, um, relevance and history um and just knowledge and education it just sounds uh yeah it just sounds so amazing um and and also it's it's interesting this sense of um biodiversity and how we're losing so much of these varieties and how do you keep them alive you grow them and you feed them to people and you get them interested in it right and you educate them about it as you do it so it sounds like the the mission that you all have is is very important and it has multiple facets to it. Yeah. But what I want um, Linda to do too is tell you um, how we came up with the name Gabriel Fields and why that's important. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you know it's you know nodding to you know, the culture and the history is really important, you know, and I feel like sometimes I feel like we're all over the place because we think about all of these things and we get so excited and, you know, um, but, you know, as Floyd said, you know, we named this farm Gabriel Fields for a reason, you know, so it's really about standing on the history of the land, bringing Maryland history to the forefront, not only in it, in the food culture, but also because, like I said before, for us, you know, bringing you know, to the forefront, the, the the Maryland Black food narrative is is super important to us and keeping it at the forefront. So when we were mulling around, we we're like, we have all this land. We know we're going to farm. Well, what do we call it? We have to bring this land to life. Um, you know, and, you know, as one does, you, you, you know, you, you take a Google trip and you go down one rabbit hole and next thing you know, you're in Wonderland. <laughs> um, and I fell upon this story um, about, uh, you know, during the war of 1812 and, you know, during, you know, that war and how, when the British kind of proclaimed, you know, well, you know, anyone that took up arms against America, you'd be granted freedom. So that was offered to all of those folks who were enslaved. And so we know that the war was fought on the waters right here on the shore of Maryland. And, you know, there was a young, a young man who was um, enslaved and he was a young boy Um, and his name was Gabriel and he, um, was on a farm and there is documentation that exists for him. Um, but you know, he disappeared on the shores of, of Maryland in Calvert County. And so interesting enough because, um, (laughs) Tanya traced her roots back to Calvert County and her family, um, in, in Calvert County. And so, you know, he ended up, this young man, he ended up showing up in documentation in Nova Scotia, Canada, which was one of the refugee camps for formerly enslaved um, that the British had picked up. So I, this was like brand new history for me to learn that, oh, yeah, for you know, and that, you know, some of our enslaved ancestors had escaped slavery and had been dropped off in places like Trinidad and Tobago. And some of them had been dropped off in Nova Scotia, Canada. 
Um, and so Nova Scotia, Canada is one of the only places that actually has documentation of that relocation refugee camp of formerly enslaved. And so this young man, his full name was Gabriel Hall. There actually is a picture of him that exists. And he is one of the only, that is the only photograph that exists of a refugee from the War of 1812. Um, and so this young man, he, you know, he grew up and they had a hard time. It wasn't an easy time once they were relocated, even though that they weren't in bondage anymore, they still had a rough time there. You know, they couldn't farm that land. It was extremely dense. It's cold, the climate. Um, and so a lot of times what happened, you know, they would say that, oh, this is another reason why, you know, Black people are inferior because you can't even figure out how to farm this land. Well, the far- the, the land is can't even be farmed. It's cold. The conditions are impossible, right? And so, you know, at that time, the Nova Scotia government gave land allotments to a lot of the refugees, but Gabriel Hall was too young. At the time, he was in his teens. So, he, you know, when he got older, he wrote a letter to petition to the Nova Scotian government for 25 acres of land. And there is record that the government granted it to him, but there was no record that he ever received it. Um, and so after hearing that story, it just kind of struck a chord with me, the fact that he was from Maryland. And I turned and I told him the story and I was like, we've got to dedicate the land to Gabriel Hall. And I was like, we can call it Gabriel Fields. And so it's a nod to this rich history, um, not just the history of Maryland, but Black history as well. Um, And how this connection between the land that was promised, um, but never realized. And so bringing it to its present And now this is sort of a dream and a promise realized in a place where land can actually be cultivated um, to actually produce goodness. So, yeah, it's very important. I know you hold back them tears after that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everyone should be like shedding a tear. No, that's such a powerful story and it's such a powerful echo across time to be able to connect with people, you know, in in your area, but to speak to a much broader experience. Um, And I think it's something, you know, I know, I know Melissa and I have talked a lot about this, you know, as educators, you have to grapple with, like, you cannot talk about farming in the U.S. without the legacy of genocide and enslavement. And it's it's just, it's impossible. And it's it's impossible to think that, um, you know, we could somehow deal with our, our future issues around, you know, climate, rising sea levels, all kinds of threats to the food supply chain, and not also deal with um, these massive, you know, the repercussions of the failure of reconstruction, et cetera. And so it's it's really, it's wonderful to hear positive stories of, of kind of, um, you know, taking that history and, and mobilizing it, doing something with it. I'm not just t- telling people about it, which is super important, but also you're literally growing uh, food on, on that land and kind of stewarding it and, and making it a living kind of um, showcase of, of that promise that you're speaking to, you know, the land that was supposed to be <laughs> given out and that wasn't really in, in almost, you know, most cases. So um, yeah, it's, it's really powerful. Can't, can't, can't wait to see it. Um, you know, and, and like I say, we'll have you back on, you know, you, maybe you can share some updates. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. 
Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I, I had a note here um, from from discussions beforehand. You know the, the origin of of the culinary contributions of Africans living on the U.S. Atlantic seaboard. Like, what are some? Like, I guess this is 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 going to the this legacy question of of um, of other stories. Like you mentioned the, the fish pepper, um, you know, varietal that associated with um, with with I, I think like um, like shellfish, especially right. Like, um, and and. Th- you know, the idea that as, as urbanization happened in a certain way and people were displaced, frankly, um, you know, varietals of food go away and that bringing that back is part of, you know, again, education and, and bringing back to life um, food ways, you know, way, ways of relating to to the living environment. Like, I was just wondering if there are other stories, um, you know, may, you know, dishes you like to cook, um, other other things that highlight that history. Um, you know, obviously the name of the farm, that's a powerful example. But is there anything else that jumps to mind there from your you know, whether as, as a farmer, as a chef, you know, take it however you want. But well, I, mean, I think Linda said it. I mean, everything that we do is in, you know, is paying reverence to that. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, us cooking or um, us planning an event or we're styling an event. You know, we think about those things. It's <clears throat> it's important to us. And from a food standpoint and farming, listen, um, you know, I don't know if there's a more important part of the work that we do. Once we start the farming, I think that is probably going to be the most important work that we do in terms of a business. Because not only will we use a product here, but we'll be able to use that product and sell it in supermarkets and sell it in places where the African-American community, any community can buy that product. That's the work that we want to do. Um, and I think that's the, am I, I, I answering the question? Um, <laughs> you know, other than that, um, <clears throat> you know, everything that we do is, is trying to pay reverence. Um, everything that we do is in educating people on our contributions. Um, when I say our contributions, the contributions of African Americans, and we know that African Americans really created a an industry in this country. We were the beginning of what real farming was. And then once you get out of farming and you get into industrial agriculture and you get into <clears throat> the latter part of the antebellum era where hospitality was created. Hospitality was created in the home. <clears throat> Those homes were staffed by enslaved Africans, or in Maryland, in some cases, freed and enslaved Africans. You know, so what we did for the American culture in terms of food is unprecedented. And all we want to do is stand on that. We want to stand on that, represent it, elevate it, um, and make sure people are aware of the fact that you we are more than fried chicken and collard greens. Um, our contributions to the foodways are more than mac and cheese and neck bone. Um, it is because of us that America has the cuisine that it has. And you can call it barbecue, Creole, you know, Cajun, uh, soul food or Southern. It was created by the enslaved African. Um, and that's important to us that, yeah, we're no longer slaves. We are no longer enslaved. What we can tell you, though, 
is that those enslaved Africans created something so beautiful um, and so representative of who we are as a people that it can no longer be overlooked. And our job is just to keep telling that story. That's great. I mean, I yeah, I can't wait to go to Baltimore and eat some food and think more about, <laughs> you know, like like just what you said, all all of the, yeah, I, there, there's a, there's a lot there, and, and um, you know, I I think it's it'll be great to especially um I I also can't wait to see what you do with the farm and like follow that that story forward. Um, well, yeah, and I think it's also like this this huge educational kind of opportunity where it's like, mm-hmm. in you know, just in telling that story of the name of the farm, it's like I I didn't know anything about that, you know, and so it's like just in the name in general. You are telling that story, you're um, giving importance to that story and to, you know, um, folks who came before us and especially, you know, African-Americans who came before us who put, did so much work. It was interesting. One of the um, uh, a previous um, guests that we had was Etta Fields Black, and she was talking about um the rice fields in, in the Carolinas and, and just the amount of work that you could see it from space, right. That, um, these were folks that had the knowledge, you know, that knew what to do, that knew how to irrigate the fields, that knew how to work in brackish waters, who built this whole economy. And it's never, you know, it's, it's not really acknowledged. And so just a sense of, of, of acknowledgement and, and also the, the power of the work that you're doing just sounds uh, really incredible. So, yeah, so thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, what you were saying about um, the, rice. the rice fields. I mean, Tanya and I were fortunate enough. We were in um, South Carolina, I think, last year, the year before, um, at the uh, Middleton Plantation. And... <clears throat> the Middleton Plantation, um, if you're not familiar with the history, the Middletons, um, two of them were signers of the Declaration of Independence, um, probably the largest landowners in the country at one time, certainly the largest landowners in South Carolina. Um, but these people had more slaves in, under their purview than anybody else at one time. They owned more property and more land than anyone else. And I think at one time they had 19,000 or something like that. 19,000 enslaved Africans that worked for them. One of the rice fields on the Middleton plantation was hand dug. Um, Tanya and I got a chance to see it. When I tell you it is the size of three or four football fields, it is the size of three or four football fields in length and width. And it was all hand dug by enslaved Africans. The work that we did for this country is unprecedented. It's, you cannot, you cannot overstate it. You just can't. When you look at that field and you say, wait a minute, it was hand dug. How many people did it take to dig three football fields and not only fill it, dig it, but then you had to get the water to it. Mm. It's, it's crazy. And we stood there, I mean, right off the shore looking at this water. I mean, they're not doing anything with it now. It's, it's just a beautiful landscape and it, you know, shows the beauty of the property now that's all they do with it but but actually what they also told us about the history of it is that that particular location that he's talking about that particular field was actually also the um that was the that was the that was the pretty field the pretty field <clears throat> because the actual working field 
what you see the most of the enslaved doing it was across the road. Right. That was just when people came that it looked all nice and it looked like where you had, you know. Yeah, so what they wanted it, to show was, happy slaves and pretty and <clears throat> land and people that, you know, were you not mistreated. But the that and that was that property was right behind the big house. There's maybe a couple hundred yards from the big house. So when they had all the, you know, important people come, That's <clears throat> you know, back then everybody did a barbecue, right? We call it a barbecue, a picnic, or a cookout. When you were, you know, um, bringing people to your house to socialize, that's what you did. So they wanted to have big, beautiful grounds. So they had English gardens, sculptural gardens with beautiful opiary trees and all kinds of stuff. All that on that side of property. Across the road, <clears throat> back in the woods a couple hundred feet, if you go back there across the road, then you'll see the actual working plantation where the actual rice fields were where the actual cotton fields were, all that stuff where they were actually working the land. Um, it's just so crazy <clears throat> when you get down there and you get to see these different locations, how it was set up and how they tried to make us feel one way, but portrayed us in a different way. The story is that they just went to Africa and grabbed a bunch of, you know, um, you know, uh, what do they call us? Spear chuckers and, you know, whatever else. The fact of the matter is they went to different parts of that continent, Senegal, the Ivory Coast, to get skilled workmen that knew a craft. You don't just pull a bunch of people out of a jungle and have them dig rice pits and grow rice for you. That is a skilled you know, thing. You have to have that knowledge. Um, and it's just for me, it's crazy how the more research we do, the more information we find out how these stereotypes and all this craziness is torn down. Um, so we just make it our mission to keep telling these stories because we know it's the truth. Um, and people need to know the truth. I think as African-Americans too, we value our contributions more if we know we contributed and if we're told importance of those contributions. Right now, we don't see the value in it because we're not told that we're a part of it. Yeah, that that the whole history of ag, yeah, is taught in a very weird way. In a way, with this image of the the Jeffersonian small family farm unit, yeah. as opposed to really focusing on the plantation and, and those dynamics. We explored that a little with like Dr. Fields Black and others that had the repercussions it had for urbanization too. So you end up having a certain you know idea of rurality is often I think in this country associated with whiteness, which is just you know bonkers to your point, and um and it, and is not the whole story by any means. So I think it's really interesting to to have these these histories in mind, um like like the the story of 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 rice growing, especially in the South, but but of so many crops, um and then also make it come to life by like growing food yourselves, by cooking food, and being able to share that with different audiences. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's really just just a, a tremendous opportunity, um and um yeah. I, yeah, sorry, Melissa, you you were about to ask something. One of the things that that brought to mind was was just um, uh, when uh, I've heard Leah Peniman speak a couple times. Are you all familiar with Leah Peniman? And and she goes like one of her I like one of her key speaker notes is going through all of the technology, all the farming technology that came from the continent yes. of Africa, and she's just like anybody ever transplant before anybody ever, you know, like do terrace farming before anybody. And, and she like, you know, gives, um, uh, she, she just tells that story of like how many people think, you know, the practices that they use come from, 
you know, from, from Africa, from African people. And, and, and like some people, she's like zero, five, 10. And then she does the list. Right. And then she talks about the further things of like, um, what, um, that, that came from, um, enslaved folk in the South that, that it, it didn't stop on the African continent, how it continued in the Americas, right. Of, uh, rotational crops. And, and you think about like George Washington Carver, who's, who's taught in, you know, you learned that in elementary school, but that was rotating crops, you know, like, okay. and also to bring compost into fields and all these things. And he was one of the first, uh, like sustainable, like, uh, teaching these sustainable techniques, right. And regenerative farming. So it's just so amazing, just the history of it. And, 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 um, to just, educate folks about that history of, of it, but within, you know, living pr- within the work that you're doing today. So it's just, yeah, yeah it's just, so I think too, making the, making the connection here to, to bringing that history to the forefront and, and making sure it gets continuously passed down is like, not only that's yeah. the, what we champion ourselves yeah. on, but David and Tanya are part of an amazing organization called Taste Wise Kids. And that is really about educating children about where the food comes from, how we get our food. And so it's super important that, you know, we're sharing these stories as like adults and we truly understand, but we talk about those gaps in education where you don't learn that stuff in school. Like you don't learn where these things are coming from or how do we even know how to do this, you know? It's it's about really connecting it to the younger generation and to children that are young to say it is important to know what we're eating, why we eat it, where it comes from, how we get it here. And and that is such a great work that David and Tanya do. I mean, Taste Why Kids, they have a fundraiser every single year. And it is something that is just super amazing that we continue to support here in Baltimore. And it's just, I mean, it, it is really about providing voices to our ancestors who That's weren't right. able to talk before. That's so right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Libby. <laughs> well, on that note, um, we've, so we've covered some growing, some food, um, a lot of education. Um, and I think we're, we're running out of time, but I want to make sure, like, is there anything that you want to shout out? Anything you want to mention? Um, anything coming up, especially if it's later in the spring, cause this will probably air in, you know, a couple months. Um, mm-hmm that people should look out for any, any way that you want people to kind of look out um, or, or interact with, with heirloom. I mean, whether they're in Baltimore or they're not. And also how people can, can look you all up and, and learn more about your story and what you're doing. And, and yeah. I mean, certainly follow us um, on all our social media, heirloom Baltimore, or um, go to our website, heirloom.com um, sign up for our newsletter um, Linda's always putting important information about what's going on in the company, things that we're doing, things that we've got coming up, exciting new news. Uh, we've got a lot of couple different things that we can't talk about yet. Some really good oh, announcements. Yeah, that's right. um, <laughs> you know, so those things, uh, you know, if they sign up for the newsletter, they'll be able to get more information. And then we also started a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's a great way for them to go on there and start seeing some of the things. We start documenting some of the work we've done. One of the first things that we placed on there was when we did the outstanding in the field dinner on a farm here in Maryland. And um, that was our first one. It's called We Are the Storytellers. And in a synopsis on that, that's like the beginning of telling the story of what we're doing and what we do here in Baltimore and in Maryland. Great. Yeah, no, we'll definitely have to check out the YouTube. Um, Maybe you'll get on the TikTok. I don't know. Melissa, are you on TikTok? Is that a thing for Urban Ag (laughs) in New York? No. 
Oh my gosh, we have the TikTok, you know, death convo all the time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> we don't want to do TikTok. It's so big, though. It's so big with the youth. Just thinking of kids, like you said, if you want to get them young, I think you got to go even from Instagram to TikTok. Um, pulling teeth to get us to do reels on Instagram. I was going to say, but you know, yeah, that's like what we get it. That's what we heard. Yeah, same. We're, yeah, I, I would much rather talk to people than, than do social media myself personally. But um, well, thanks so much. Um, you know, what's uh, just what's like the next thing you're excited to cook or eat? What's like a food like, I don't know, maybe I'm just hungry, but what's on everybody's mind? <laughs> um, wow. The next thing I'm excited about eating or cooking or cooking. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm. We always out. we're always doing we're foods. Always doing food, now you know, you know so- what there is a um, there is a, a, a pop up coming soon. I, I know this podcast is later on, but um, I'm excited to have Tanya's biscuits again um, <laughs> oh, in the you. during. So we're also we do pop ups at the Baltimore Farmers Market here in the city. So every Sunday, um, it's the downtown Baltimore Farmers Market and Bazaar, and so it really highlights local farms, local products, um, local vendors, um, not just food, but also you know could be clothing, and it's just so great, and it's just such a such a big mix and diverse crowd, and so. We pop up down there as well, serving some of our farm, you know, fresh table foods. And one of the best things that has come out of there is Tanya's scratch-made biscuits, all made with organic, no artificial sugars, no artificial coloring. It They are the best biscuits, <laughs> hands down. And we are actually doing some market research here to be able to package them and have them sold as well. But I'm super excited because I'm looking forward to having her, um, your sticky bun. Sweet potato sticky Sweet bun Sweet potato biscuit. sticky bun biscuit. Yeah, that, yeah that's like it's right. Uh, I like the apple so bun too. I like oh, the apple yeah, cider. Oh, yeah, the apple cider. The apple cider biscuit with the apple She makes butter. an... I, listen, you know how you go to pumpkin farms, you get the apple cider, like, donuts? Mm-mm. Apple cider biscuit. It is out of this world. So I'm super, I think that's what I'm looking forward to is looking forward to the biscuits. They're just so, they're like dense, but also light and fluffy. And I love biscuits. They're my favorite like hand food like that, of the, the plain hand foods, not stuff, not an empanada, uh, love a biscuit. So that's definitely on the menu. Um, that's pretty great. Uh, well, thank you all so much for joining. Um, it's been really a pleasure. I mean, I could talk for much longer, um, but uh, yeah, I think we have to let you, you get on your, your busy day uh, running a farm now and all of these uh, culinary <laughs> ventures otherwise. So sounds like you gave yourselves like a lot of work there, but no, we really, um, we wish you the best and, and definitely want to, uh, you know, all I can think is like, Oh, we definitely need to follow up and like, uh, you know, maybe visit the farm next year or something. So, um, and if you're in New York, you know, please, please uh, let us know and we'll, we'll hang out. Yeah. We'd love to have you. Absolutely. Um, well, everyone should check out heirloom with a three instead of an E, um, dot com. And, uh, yeah, please follow heirloom, uh, group on, uh, Instagram and maybe in the future, TikTok. Uh, (laughs) and happy growing uh this has been fields the unfinished story of urban agriculture on heritage radio network uh have a lovely evening everybody fields is powered by riverside 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.